Anyway, good morning, uh, everyone. What we're going to do uh, today is we're going to continue a series. So we're, uh, it's the 500th year anniversary of when uh, Martin Luther uh, nailed the 95 Theses on the door of the church and started the Reformation. And so what we've done is we're taking three weeks to go through uh, three pieces of it. So there's actually five. They call them five solas. And last week, Toby talked about one. This week, I'm going to talk about one. Mike's going to talk about one next week. So last week, Toby preached on solo gratia. I don't know Latin. I'm not quite sure. Is that right? (laughs) Toby says close enough. So, all right. So solo gratia or grace alone. Today, I'm going to preach on solo fide, which is Latin for faith alone. And although these two are distinct things, they're really two united things. And for a complete understanding how we're saved, we need uh, to know that they're both in there because really we're saved by grace alone through faith alone. And I'm sure that in Toby's preparation, he went through great pains to not preach both of these together so that, we, so that you wouldn't have to hear the same message twice. And so in many ways, I'm sure that he felt constricted as he, as he preached it and that there may have been shortcomings on his part, but there certainly wasn't because he was trying to divide a coin in half, so to speak, cut it and just, and just preach on this one. Um, but these things go together. They're intentional. They're supposed to be. So uh, you guys familiar with the, what a Venn diagram is? Yeah, so the Venn diagram, we have one of these. It's two pieces. This is the piece that I preached. This is the piece that Toby preached. But as you can see, it's grace alone through faith alone. So these two things are together. Next week, Mike's going to preach, so we have a Venn diagram of that. So there's going to be this overlap between what we said and what Toby said and what, I guess we, what I said, Toby said, and what Mike says. So if we're going to preach all five messages, we have a Venn diagram of that. So this is what that would look like. <laughs> Just <laughs> right, Because they're so interwoven, they're so overlapping. You cannot have one of these things without the other. So there's a guy named J.I. Packer, and he says this. He says, with Luther, the reformer saw all of Scripture as being in the last analysis, either law or gospel. By, meaning by law, all that exposes our ruin through sin. And by gospel, everything that displays our restoration by grace through faith. And the heart of the biblical gospel was to them God's free gift of righteousness and justification. Here was the sum and the substance of that. Solo fide, solo gratia, solo Christo, solo scriptura, solo dea gloria. Justification by faith, by grace, by Christ, through scripture, to the glory of God. It was to them a single topic. Just as a flag with several voices in a single piece. All right, so who knows what a flag is? No music. I had no clue what that meant. I'm like, oh, it sounds cool, though, so I'm going to investigate. So here's what a flag is. It is, oh, fugue, what did I say? Oh, say it again. Fugue, fugue, fugue. Does anybody know what a fugue is? Yeah. I saw that, yeah, that's right. I saw that was in the parentheses it said F-E-W-G for pronunciation, so fugue. All right, here's a fugue. Let's see if this helps you at all. A musical composition in which one or two themes are repeated or imitated successively entering voices and contrapuntually developed in a continuous interweaving of the voice parts. Okay, does that make it clearer? (laughs) Sometimes when we think of this whole 
solo this, solo that, solo that. This is the definition that we get. So we have audio visual of what a fugue is. It's something like their youth group. <laughs> no, here we go. So here it is, visually and audioly. <laughs> if we can get it, I hope we can, because if not, we're going to be hopelessly confused, because I was putting these definitions up based on our ability to watch this video. Um, so how much time do we have? All right. Here we go. All right. Listen. This is Johann Sebastian Bach. We'll just wait to this one complicated part. All right, so the song is six minutes. We're not going to listen to the whole part of the song. It is a good song. But do you see how it works? All of those are playing that same tune. They're all going together. And this is how we view salvation. It's by grace alone. It's by faith alone. Through Christ alone through the Bible alone, and it's to God's glory alone. And these things all play together. And so Toby was trying to just play the blue part last week. I'm going to try to play the orange part this week. Mike is going to try to play the green part next week. But they all go together, and this is how it is. So um, what we're going to do today, thank you very much. So, <laughs> Oh, did I knock that over? Yeah. Oh. We call that in the air traffic control business, awareness not maintained. <laughs> so, some of those stories I should probably keep to myself, right? <laughs> That's why I always have many, many people that do the same job. So, all right, so, with all that to say, here we go. We're going to look at Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. There's a guy named Dr. Leon Morris, and he says this. This may possibly be the most important single paragraph ever written. He says, this might be the most important paragraph ever written. So let's read it. It says, By the righteous, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. And it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
Let me just pray before we move forward. Father God, we come before you now, Lord, and we want to look at this passage, Lord, what someone has dubbed the most important passage ever written. Lord, we know we can't understand this with our own hearts and with our own strength and might, but we need you. So we ask your spirit might come upon us right now and teach us. Let us learn this from your spirit that we might understand this clearly, Lord, and that we might live by this, that this might change our lives forever. In your precious and holy name we pray, amen. So as we break this passage down, what we see first of all is that we are guilty. It says, for all have sinned and all have fallen short. In order to understand that we need to be saved by faith, we need to be convinced that we are guilty. We need to be convinced that we're guilty. But so often we don't think that we're guilty. Why is that? Why don't we think that we're guilty? One of the reasons that we think that we can please God, somehow or another we think that we can do enough to please God. We probably wouldn't say it, and yet our life ends up being like this. One commentator says, says this, he says, Justification by works is the natural religion of mankind, and it has been ever since the fall. We trick ourselves into think we're doing good. We, we think we are. When I was a kid, I took, I took guitar lessons. And uh, one of the things that I found out was that I had absolutely no rhythm <laughs> whatsoever. And so I'm taking guitar lessons, and it's a one-on-one, and we're in the studio, and, and I'm here, and the teacher's sitting across from me face-to-face, and I've got my guitar, and I'm doing this, and I'm like playing my guitar like this, and I'm tapping my foot. And the other guy was right here, and he's like this, and he's looking at me, and he's looking at me, and finally he says, stop, stop, just stop it. And I'm going, he's like, stop tapping your foot. I'm like, how come? He's like, because every time we go on the downbeat, you're on the upbeat. Every time we go on the downbeat, <laughs> so they're just driving me crazy. So obviously scarred my guitar player. You never see, see me up here. But so I've always, my whole life, tried to get rhythm. And I just, it just seems too elusive, and I can't do it. And today, for the first time, I thought, I've got rhythm. And the reason why is I'm over here playing, and I went like this. My foot went down the exact same time that the drum beat. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I've got rhythm. And I'm like, I've got rhythm. So now I'm paying attention. And like this, and I'm like anticipating it. Like, when's he going to hit the drum? When's he going to hit the drum? So I'm like, clunk, ding, clunk, ding. God, I don't have rhythm, right? <laughs> so, but we strive for this perfection, and we think we have it. And what happens is, yeah, maybe we do something right. It's like I just happened to put my foot down the same time that he happened to hit the drum, and it felt good, and it felt right. And I thought I'd have rhythm, right? But I don't, and I'm not perfect. And we think we are, and this is what happens is we think that we can be holy. We think that we can be perfect. We think that we do, and we trick ourselves into believing that we are doing well enough. But this passage says, no, all have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. And as the commentator says, this has been our natural religion since the fall. So think about the fall, right? In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. He creates Adam. He puts Adam in, in this garden. God plants this garden. He puts everything in there. Beautiful, beautiful garden. And he puts two trees in there. He puts the, um, two trees, the tree of the... Uh, and in the middle of it, there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, I forget what the other one was. doesn't matter for this story. So <laughs> he's got two trees. And he tells Adam, do not eat of this tree. You can eat of anything. The whole thing is yours. The whole garden is yours, but do not eat from this tree. And he creates Eve. And they have this one rule, this one stipulation. 
But what do they do? They break the single rule that they have to follow. They eat from the tree. And they are then cursed. They are thrown out of the garden of Eden because they have disobeyed God. They are guilty and they are punished. God said that the punishment is going to be death. From this point forward, there is now death. It doesn't happen right away. Just like when we sin, there isn't instantaneous death. If there was, none of us would be here, right? But because of God's mercy, he withholds that punishment and he gives us this um, opportunity. But this idea of this punishment is seen throughout Scripture. And this understanding that we know truth and what it is is found throughout Scripture as well. Um, because as time marches on, God gives the law to the Jewish people. And it's clear, this is what the law is. It's as clear as it can be. Not only is it clear for the Jewish people, but it's clear for us as well. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 21 says this. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Everybody is without excuse. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 9. Paul, the Apostle Paul goes on. He says, For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of ash is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So just think about that, right? I know that there was a lot in there, but just think about that whole idea that we have knowledge of sin. Because this is what the Apostle Paul is saying. There is no excuse. We all know what it is. And we know deep down what's right and what's wrong. And we know intuitively when someone has done something wrong to us. And we know intuitively when we ourselves have done something wrong. And the news stations, right, they report all day long of people doing things that are wrong. And we're either amazed by what they've done or we're repulsed by what they've done. But we know that wrong has been done. We have this sense of this rightness and wrongness. And so there is no excuse whatsoever when you do wrong. There is no justifying it whatsoever. And you know it. And God knows it. And he says the wages of sin is death. God intends us God intends us to feel our sins and our guilt. He intends us to feel our sins and our guilt. John Stott puts it like this. 
All human beings are without exception sinful, guilty, inexcusable, and speechless before God. That was a terrible predicament in Romans 1 through 3. There was no light, no flicker of hope, no prospect of rescue at all. John Stock goes on and he talks about that we all sin, but you know there's differences in sin. And we can look at people, we look at ourselves, we look at other people, and we compare ourselves to it. And he goes on and he says this, he says, of course there are degrees of sinning, and therefore there are differences. Yet nobody, nobody even approaches God's standard. Bishop Hanley Mole put it dramatically, he said this, he said, the harlot, the liar, the murderer are short of God's glory. But so are you. Perhaps they stand at the bottom of a deep mine, and you stand on the crest of an alp. You are still as little able to touch the stars as they are. Right? So we compare people, and we compare them to us, and we say they are so bad, it's like they're standing in a deep mine. And we are so good, it's like we're standing on the top of the mountain. We cannot get any higher. They cannot get any lower. And he says, neither of you can touch the stars. We all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. And so John Piper puts it like this. He's trying to get us to imagine what it looks like. He says, picture this. You're in a courtroom. The courtroom is in heaven. You are the defendant, and you are guilty. You are rebellious. And there's a prosecuting attorney standing there with many witnesses. And their accusations are, are flying. And you feel them. They are true. And you remember them. And there is a judge that's standing there. And that is God. Once we feel our sins, we have this desire to get rid of them. We have this desire to atone for our sins. And lots of times what we do is we try to atone for our sins ourselves. It's this um, self-righteousness that we try to get. So um, Martin Luther was the guy who 500 years ago did the 95 Theses and stuff. And so he's got an interesting um, background. And this is one of the major things, in fact, this is the major thing that he dealt with, um, in his early life. So, uh, Martin Luther was born in Germany in 1483. He went to college to become a lawyer. His dad wanted him to be a lawyer, so he was going to school for it. Um, left home, uh, I think it was 14 or 15 when he started school, got his uh, bachelor's, got his master's. He was, he was going through. Um, young age, beat away, he made a lot of good friends. A plague swept, swept, swept through the city and three of his closest friends died. These guys that he had gone through, these guys who he was going to be lawyers with, these guys who he was going to be friends his whole life, they're all killed when this plague goes through. Martin Luther is leaving uh, the city one night, and this fierce storm comes up. It's a horrible, horrible storm. And this lightning bolt comes down, and he's hurtled to the ground. And in this storm, he's cowering in fear, and he thought, certainly, he's going to die. His other three friends has died. He's out here. It's this wrath of God is what he thought. And so he reaches out, and he cries out to one of the um, saints. He says, help me, Saint Anne. And if you help me, I will become 
a monk. He feared for his soul. He found no safety anywhere at all. So he leaves his pursuit to be a lawyer, and he joins the monastery. And at that time, Luther thought of God as being his vindictive enemy, as being his merciless judge. All he saw was this wrath of God and him not being able to live up to what God wanted. And so he lived this terrified life that he would never, ever, ever find peace with God because he thought God was not a God of peace. And he lived with this constant sense of dread, this constant sense of dread and of guilt and facing this terrifying, angry, unforgiving God. He worried about his death because he feared that he had not done enough to please God. He hadn't done enough to please God. And it seemed impossible that even with all of his efforts, his best effort, even in cooperation with grace, it would be inadequate. It just simply wouldn't be enough. He thought that no one could love God as the Bible required. And he thought that God stood ready to condemn him because of it and to destroy him in that last day of judgment. So he's in the monastery now. What does he do? He tries harder and harder and harder to appease God. He does everything he can. He's like the monk of monks. Everything that the monks do, he does to the extreme. So he fasts longer. He prays longer. He sleeps outside in the snow with no blankets on at all in order to overcome the flesh. He says, I had hoped I might find the peace of conscience with fasting and prayers and vigils with which I miserably affected my body. But the more I sweated it out like this, the less peace and tranquility I knew. His fellow monks would bring him in from outside, sleeping without clothes on because they thought he was going to die, or without blankets on because they thought he was going to die, and they were trying to rescue him. Um, and he says this, um, um, well, let me just say this. So he enters this monastery in order to quiet his soul. That's what he wants to do. He wants to quiet his soul. That's why he did it. He wanted to find peace with God, but it just doesn't work. He says, while I was a monk, I no sooner felt assailed by any temptation than I cried out, I am lost. I went every single day to confession, but that was of no use to me at all. <laughs> this is kind of a funny story, because picture, picture this is Martin Luther. Now you're the guy who's listened to his confession. Martin Luther used to come in every single day for confession. And he thought in order for his confession to be true, he had to say every sin, every thought, every intention. He had to walk through his whole life like that. He would sit in the confessional booth for six hours at a time, sometimes six hours, because he was trying to confess every, every single sin. So can you imagine the guy, six hours? Well, exactly what you'd think happened. It's like they would start potting him off to a different confessor and a different one, a different one. They would see him and it's like, we don't want anything to do with this guy because he just, he just felt this weight. He's like, I cannot do it. I know if I confess my sins, there's something there. And so for hours, and he would sometimes do this, maybe not the whole six hours, but sometimes he'd go to confession four times a day because he just felt this wrath of God. He saw his sin, and he felt this wrath of God. Um, it didn't help. He couldn't work his way. He couldn't have enough righteousness. He couldn't produce this righteousness in his own self. His purpose of doing these good works was to compensate for his sins, but he couldn't do it. Um, 
he couldn't satisfy God at any point, and he says this. Um, we have an overhead for this one. He says, though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I couldn't believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love. Yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. And secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God. And I said, as if indeed it's not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost through original sins are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Decalogue without having God add pain to pain by the gospel and also by the gospel threatening us with the righteous wrath. Thus I rage with a fierce trouble and conscience. At this stage of Martin Luther's life, he finds himself standing empty-handed before God who is holy. What now? What next? He's done everything he can possibly do to be righteous before holy God. So what's next? One of his uh, mentors there saw Luther, and everything Luther did was inside, inside, inside. It was all internal, this myopic view that he had. said, I want you to teach others. And I want you to teach others the Bible. So Martin Luther opened up the Bible and he started teaching other people. And this changed his life. And it changed everything because Luther now found out as he read through Romans um, that the righteous live by faith. He found out that we are saved not by works, but by faith alone. It's grace alone, faith alone, in Christ alone is what he found out. See, here's the problem, right? We need to be righteous before God. No one is righteous before God. No one is. So that's what our problem is. How do we be righteous before God if no one can be righteous before God? And this is why Dr. Morris said that this is possibly the most single important paragraph that was ever written. Because let's just look at verses 21 through 25 again. He says, the righteousness of God, which is what Luther tried to get, has been manifested apart from the law. Uh, the law and the prophets have bear witness to it. But the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Right? So right in there he says, this is for, this is the righteousness of God. And it's for those who have fallen, for those who are short. It says they are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. <laughs> well, that's a hard word to say, isn't it? Propitiation uh, by his blood to receive by faith. So um, Henry Mounts, so it, it's funny because going through this, right? So this happened 500 years ago. And it was a big, big, divisive kind of concept between the Catholic Church and the Reformation. So you can imagine the writing that has taken place over 500 years. And so even as I was uh, reading, there's just so much to read about and so much to understand. So there's that old saying, it's like, if I have a watch, I always know what time it is. If I have two watches, I never know what time it is, right? Because one, one watch says 12.01, the other says 12.02. Is it 12.01? Is it 12.02? And so you end up getting confused. So um, 
I ended up like look, reading all these commentaries and stuff, commentators, and so I'm quoting a lot of them. I think I'm just going to stop saying who they are. Just assume if it sounds smart, it's a commentator. <laughs> if they use different words that aren't just the normal ones they use, just assume it's a commentator. But rather than break it up, I'm just going to kind of weave our words together as we look at the rest of this. So here's where we are. By nature, by our very nature, we view righteousness as something that we contain, we can attain by our works. We think it's the result of something to do. It just makes sense, right? We want to be righteous. It seems like something we do. But the righteousness of God is totally and completely different than that. Because this right standing before God has nothing to do with our own merit. But it's something that's received by faith. We sing the song, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. The righteousness of God comes through faith in Christ Jesus. It belongs to everyone who believe in him. Because it comes through Christ because of what Christ has done. Christ has died on the cross for our sins to take that full penalty and to make us righteous before God. It's a righteousness that we don't have and we can't possibly muster up and make. It's this righteousness that's outside of ourselves. And because of what Christ does, what Christ did, we put our faith in him. It's our faith alone. And it becomes our righteousness. It's the righteousness of God. But it's outside of ourselves. Um, And the amazing thing about this, too, is that he doesn't give this righteousness only to holy people, because we've already said there aren't holy people, right? But he gives us to those who fall short, to those who are sinners. Look at this passage. Um, I don't have it noted here, but I think it's... Anyway, it doesn't matter. It's somewhere in the Bible. <laughs> we can look it up later. Um, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. That's that righteousness, if we could attain it. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, listen to who believes in him, who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those who, whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. This righteousness is given to unrighteous people. His righteousness is given to unrighteous people. In the Old Testament, one of the things that they had was the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, the priest enters the Holy of Holies. And at that time, it was necessary that there be this um, cloud of incense that covers the mercy seat so that the priest wouldn't die. And the priest goes in there and he has to sprinkle blood seven times and this is in order to make atonement for God's people so that it turns God's wrath away from the people. And inside of there was this Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant had the, um, um, the law, the Ten Commandments that were in there. And this showed that there's this broken law. There's a broken law that stands between God and man. A holy God and an unholy man. Righteous versus unrighteousness. But in that picture, it's this shedding of the blood 
It's the shedding of the blood that creates this reconciliation. A place of judgment becomes a place of reconciliation because of the blood that was shed. And in Christ's death, these demands for God's justice are met. It's through Christ's blood that God's demands for justice are met. And so we take this righteousness of God and it becomes ours. Um, One of the commentators says, Paul says that we receive this righteousness of God. We're justified by his grace through faith in Christ. And he says this, he says justification involves this double counting or crediting. He says on the one hand, this negative thing is that God will never count our sins against us. And positive, on the other hand, um, he says that God credits our account with righteousness, a free gift by faith altogether apart from the works of the law. It's not anything that we do. It's faith in Christ where his righteousness becomes our righteousness. So back to the courtroom. John Piper's in there. We're standing, or the one that he describes, we're standing before this God. Everything that the accusers have said are correct. Everything the lawyers have said are correct. And he says, in that courtroom, none of the true, none of the legitimate accusations are allowed to stand. They're true, they're legitimate, but they are not allowed to stand. They're all being overruled, every single one of them, from the most petty to the most grotesque, for one reason. The judge has declared that you are innocent, that you are not guilty. The judge declared you to be a law keeper and not a law breaker. You are justified. Even though in yourself you are none of these things, it is God who justifies And so on that basis, on that foundation of God's justification, he declares us not guilty. Not a lawbreaker, but a law keeper. And once again, it's because of this, um, the death of Christ and what he has done for us. Um, Verses 25 through 26 say this. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Judaism emphasized this God's justice. And they recognized that as a judge, he can't just simply acquit guilty people. He can't just walk away. He can't just pretend like nothing happened at all. But Paul says that God can be just and he can be the justifier because he simultaneously vindicates us as just because we depend on Jesus and only because the sentence of wrath was executed on Jesus in their place. So um, God is just and God is the one who justifies us. And it's because of what Christ has done. So, um, we want to look now that we are saved by faith. And not only are we saved by faith, but we live by faith as well. Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5 says this. It says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. 
Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? See, we have this tendency, even as believers, to think that we came to Christ by faith and to understand that and to have a good clear, crisp, concrete understanding, I know that I came to faith. But what do we end up doing? We end up living our life that way. We end up trying to create this righteousness inside of us. right? And we feel like God is angry if we don't measure up. And we feel that he's right there to condemn if we don't measure up. And so Paul is saying we live our life by the same faith with which we began our life. There is no different. We live every day by that faith and by that understanding, and we walk in the Spirit because of it. So at the same time, we don't want to say, well, it's faith alone, therefore I don't have to do anything, right? Because there's a difference between trying to work out our righteousness and our salvation so that we're here to please God with the concept that if we are saved, we will naturally do good works. And so in the book of James, James tries to go through and he tries to explain how we live life as believers. And he says this in chapter 2. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he doesn't have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. So this has been one of those confusing passages and people have gone back and forth saying, well, what is James saying? Is, it, is he saying different than what Paul says? Because Paul says it's faith alone. But really what James is saying is like, how do you test your faith? What's the proof that it's, re that it's real? If I look at it, where's the evidence? You see the Apostle Paul all the time when he's, when he's talking to the different churches and stuff, he's like, I've heard throughout the whole area of your faith in Christ and your love for the brothers. He puts those two things together. You see this over and over and over in his letters. I've heard of your faith. I've heard of your love for the brothers. I've seen what you've done. And he goes through this. And this is what James is saying. James isn't saying that we mix these two things. But he's saying this is the proof and this is the evidence. And we will do good works. Why? Because God has given us this righteousness. This righteousness of God is inside us. We are a new creation and we have this new heart. And so we're naturally going to do these things. You cannot be a new creature and still act the old way. Right? You are changed forever because it's God who does this change um, with you. So what are some of the obstacles that we go through? Right? Because if we understand that we're guilty and that if we're saved by faith and we're trying to live by faith and that's really what we want to do, what are some of these obstacles that we will probably encounter? First of all, we have a tendency to put our faith in our faith. We try to look at our faith, and we put our faith in our faith, and we kind of lose sight of who Christ is. We start to look at our faith, and we think, oh, if we prayed harder, if we did this, if we did that, kind of like what Luther was doing when he was in the monastery, almost a different way, right? He was trying to work out his righteousness. But sometimes we just say, oh, if only my faith was stronger. 
and we start to do this. We're, we're like Peter walking on the water. And as soon as we take our eyes off of Christ and put it on our own faith, we start to sink. But our faith isn't in our faith. Our faith is in Jesus Christ himself, who died and rose to forgive our sins. The second obstacle is a lot like that. They're kind of intertwined, but lots of times we have this fear that our faith isn't enough. Our faith isn't big enough. Our faith isn't strong enough. And what does Christ say? If you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, that's what he's asking for, the faith the size of the mustard seed. The mustard seed is the smallest of all the garden seeds. There's no smaller one, at least at that time in that culture. It's a seed that they would have recognized as being the smallest seed that they're planting. It's like, this is the faith that you need. Because once again, our faith isn't in our faith. Our faith is in Jesus Christ, right? Our, we, you know, our, our faith, we get faith when we believe and we trust a person. So I have faith in somebody else. I have faith in you because I, I believe you and I trust you. And I think that you have two things. I think that you have the ability to do what I ask or what I need from you and the will to do it, the desire to do it, these things, uh, the power and the will to do it. And I look at that and I have faith in you because of your character, who you are, what you can do. And it's the same with us. Our faith is in, our, in ourselves. Our faith is in Jesus Christ. Our faith is in God. Is he trustworthy? What is his character like? Does he have the power, the ability to do what he says he's going to do? Does he have the will and the desire to do what he says he's going to do? Jesus Christ becomes the most trustworthy person that we can possibly know. And so our faith, if it's small, it's faith in someone who is immeasurably large, who has all the power, who has the desire, and who has the will. And that's where we put our faith in. And that's why Jesus can say, your faith can be as small as this mustard seed. But think about it. The faith is in me. The faith is in me. And that's where our faith is. And so it's one of the obstacles. We, we beat ourselves up because of our small faith. Or Satan comes in and beats us up because of our small faith. But Jesus Christ says your faith isn't dependent on the size of your faith. Your faith is dependent on who it is. Your faith is in Jesus Christ. In the future, our faith will become sight. Think about that. Our faith right now, we don't see it, right? But we have this faith that's there. We don't see Christ himself. But one day we will see Christ face to face, won't we? We will see him face to face. First John 3 says this, Beloved, we are God's children now, but what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he, when Jesus Christ appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Our faith becomes sight. We change. This, this, immortal, this mortal body becomes an immortal body, right? And when we see Christ to face, to faith, when we see Christ face, <laughs> this thing right here, the round thing, face to face. I've said face so much, I can't say the word face. So when we see him face to face, our faith becomes sight. And we are changed. John says we don't even know what we will be until he appears. But we know this, we will change. 
And this is our great hope, right? This is what we put our faith in. This is our great hope that our future faith will become sight, that we will be in heaven, that we will be with God, that we will see him face to face. And so let me just close with this. After Luther discovered this, that the righteous live by faith, that's when all, everything changed. He changed. The Reformation became, uh, started. Germany changed. And he went from someone who was so beaten up, torn down, broken, that he became this person who just loved people beyond imagination. And when we think of Luther, we think of this stout you know, guy nailing this with a scowl on his face. I'm going after the church. But Martin Luther was a pastor above everything else. And the last thing he wanted anyone to do was to go through what he had to go through. And this was the culture of the day, which is why he was so strong. So we have this guy doing this because of his love for other people, because of this. And so he says this in one of his books. He says, at last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. As it is written, he through faith is righteous shall live. There, there I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives, which the righteous live by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness, which with the merciful God justifies us by faith, as is written, he through, who through faith is righteous shall live. Obviously, this was written, right, like 500 years ago. That's why it's so difficult. But just kind of walk through, right? This is what he's seeing. He's seeing that the righteous will live by faith. And he says, here, when I realized it, when I felt it, I felt like I was altogether born again, and that I had entered paradise itself through open gates, here is a totally other face of the entire scripture, and it showed itself to me. And thereupon, I ran through the scriptures from memory. He reinterpreted what it meant, what that righteousness of God was, that righteousness of God that comes from grace alone, through faith alone, or by grace alone, by faith alone, through Christ alone. Ben can go up as we close in prayer. Father God, we come before you now and we just thank you so much, Lord. I just pray that you'll help us to understand this. Lord, that our faith is in you. This righteousness of God is from you. It is not our own righteousness. It is something that you give us, Lord. And I just pray now, Lord, that you will just help us to live by faith. In your precious name I pray, amen.